hell that I was in, I'd do anything to be better. I thought like a lunatic. You kind of just have like that little bit of hope that it will get better. You're gonna make it. This began my surrender. I am a witness of my own growth. It's a life beyond your wildest dreams, and I just have to say, it works if you work it. My story, that's what I share. You're listening to Far From Finished, a weekly podcast where we share new, real-life stories of hope and triumph, told by the people who live them. Today's story comes to us from... Hi, my name is Maggie French. I'm the Regional Manager for Business Development for Florida for American Addiction Centers, and my sobriety date is May 17th of 2008. I was born and raised in a really small town in uh, Vermont, actually, um, which is not in Canada. It's in the United States, people sometimes ask, (laughs) but it's up there. Um, I grew up on a farm. Um, in a really small community. Um, My parents raised me and my two sisters um, without television, um, which I often blamed for my problems. (laughs) Um, I I also blamed the fact that I'm the middle child. I blamed everything for my problems for a long time. But um, So they wanted us to kind of cultivate these wild imaginations, and and, um, I think I certainly managed to do that. Um, But we had this sort of idyllic childhood. Um, I really, you know, you know, my, my, um, my, my family life was really pretty good. Um, You know, I had uh, two parents that, you know, both worked hard. We weren't wealthy by any means, but we were very, you know, my sisters and I never wanted for anything. and we were given every opportunity, uh, anything we wanted to try um, as far as activities, we, we were encouraged to do so. Um, at a very young age, I fell in love with ballet, um, and that was a huge anchor for me, um, you know, for the next 20 years. Um, and I think at times, if it hadn't been for that, things would have been worse than they were. Um, so, you know, I had this sort of picturesque country life. Um Looking back, I can identify my addiction and my my alcoholism pretty early on. Um, it's actually even caught on camera a couple times in my childhood. There'd be like Christmas mornings where, you know, we would come downstairs and we didn't, our presents were always laid out. We didn't do the unwrapping thing. So you would immediately see everything you got. And I would inevitably feel let down because I think that I, you know, already was looking for outside things to fix my insides. So I guess I thought that if I got the toy that I wanted or, you know, all the gifts that I wanted, that I would feel whole and complete. And of course that never worked. So, you know, there's, there's this home video footage of, of me with this defeated look on Christmas mornings, just because I was realizing that like the whole inside, uh, was not going to be filled up with external things. Um, but I certainly was going to try to do that for the next, you know, several years. I had my first drink, which was the first substance that I put into my body, mind or mood altering substance, probably around the age of 12, pretty standard where I grew up. The the not standard thing I think is that I blacked out the first time I drank and continued to black out every time thereafter. But you know, it was harmless in the beginning, um, as it often is. And, and it also worked. It fixed what was off, you know, um, it made me feel okay. It, it made my my mind quiet down. Um, so, you know, drinking, blacking out every time I drank, um, which was funny when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, it became less funny as the years went on. And then of course I tried, you know, experimenting with marijuana 
things didn't get too out of hand um, until I met the first probably real addiction of my life, which was a guy. And he introduced me to a whole nother world of substances. But I really do believe that, you know, kind of going back to the fact that, you know, drugs and alcohol are a symptom of this disease. He, he was an addiction too, you know, um, it, it's all external things trying to sort of, you know, fix this spiritual malady. And, you know, I definitely got high off of, you know, this relationship, the, the, the chaos of it, the highs, the lows, the, you know, and I wanted to, to meet him wherever he was. And that meant, you know, by the age of 15 that I was going to, you know, try heroin intravenously. If that was what he was doing, that was what I was doing. So um, things kind of spiraled from there. I mentioned the, the ballet earlier because, you know, no matter how bad things got, I got kicked out of my house at 16 and uh, even then, I don't think I was showing up at school, but I would still show up at ballet for some reason, you know, I would still show up and it was kind of like this, this place where no matter what, I still found my way there. But yeah, so things, you know, I managed to graduate from high school miraculously. You know, I could tell you lots of stories, but you all know the stories or, or most of you do. If you're listening to this, you have them too. You know, I managed to live through and graduate from high school and then I knew I needed to do something next. You know, I was raised, you know, in a family that valued education, but I definitely knew that I wasn't going to survive in a traditional college setting. So I decided I was going to go to acting school in New York City. That made perfect sense to me. Um, <laughs> I knew there wouldn't be so many papers. Um, I knew I would be in New York City and I was still kind of furthering my, my life. So that's where I headed at 17 years of age. New York City is a pretty um, scary place to be for like a, you know, a hundred pound blackout drunk girl. And that's how I spent the next three years. I didn't, so I, I used heroin in, in high school. Um, when I got to New York, I didn't really know what to do. I was so young, not as savvy as a drug addict as I'd like to think that I was. And I didn't know how to go about getting heroin. So it kind of stopped. I had also been diagnosed with hepatitis C right before I moved to New York. My boyfriend and, and I had been, you know, sharing needles and um, had both contracted it. So I think that also played a role in my not pursuing it, but I, I didn't stop using. And that was also very common for me during the course of my addiction was to change up what I was doing. So you could never really say like, you're a heroin addict. Cause I would be like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. Now I'm just blackout drinking every night or, you know, so I did things in phases. Um, so the, this was my, my Coke and booze phase. Um, and I, I tried, you know, several other things while in New York, New York's kind of a blur and some pretty scary things happened to me. Uh, most of which I'm fortunate enough not to remember because I was in a blackout, but I had some definite guardian angels during the time that I was there that got me through that alive as well, but it, I couldn't sustain it. And also my drinking was not conducive to my uh, liver disease, <laughs> which hepatitis C is. So at some point I realized I had to get treatment for my hepatitis C if I wanted to continue to drink the way that I was drinking. And that was actually my thought process. It wasn't like, you know, oh, I should quit drinking because of this hepatitis C. It was, I should treat this hepatitis C so I can keep drinking. Such an alcoholic thought process. That, that kind of started the next part of my journey. I started this treatment, which 
you know, now the treatment for hepatitis C is fantastic. Uh, we've made so much progress in the last 10 years. Um, but back then it was pretty, pretty tough. It was 11 months of um, interferon, uh, which makes you very, very sick. So I, uh, I started it. I thought I could continue to live in New York, but I couldn't, and I ended up back at home. But the funny thing is, if, if you talked to me during that period of time and asked me what I was doing, I would still tell you I was, you know, living in New York and, and going to become an actress. My, you know, uh, my reality hadn't caught up with me. My reality was I was living at my parents' house. Um, I was on this really difficult treatment, and I had developed a pretty severe uh, pill habit to sort of numb myself through this treatment. But I was so delusional. I thought my life was still happening, you know? I, I, if you met me in a bar, which is where I often was, I would tell you, like, oh, yeah, no, I live in New York, and I'm going to be an actress, and I'm just here for a little bit, whatever, you know? I, I was... Uh, so delusional, which of course is another symptom of this disease. But you know that that was where I hit my my real bottom. I was back at home with mom and dad. You know that was the time when the the uh, oxy boom was happening, and so I was uh, swept up in that. Found another boyfriend to feed my habit. You know, and uh, sort of woke up one day sick and severely underweight and, you know, stealing from, from the, the restaurant that I worked in that was owned by my uncle to support this, this pill habit that was, I thought, keeping me alive. And I remember I said to my mom, we're in there during all of this somewhere, you know, we are inside of there. And, and that uh, somewhere in there, I knew that like I had to get away. I didn't know that I needed treatment. I couldn't identify that like I needed help or that I was uh, addicted, you know, none of those things my addiction would not let me see those things clearly, but somewhere in me, I knew that like, this was bad. And I remember I said to my mom, like, I think I need to go to like surf camp in Hawaii. You know, that was like my solution. <laughs> and she kind of laughed because unbeknownst to me, they were planning my intervention at the time. So a few weeks later, they did an intervention. And, you know, my disease had been my best friend for a long time at that point. So, um, you know, they were telling me they were to take away the only thing that had been consistent for me for a long time. And so I was clawing at it to keep it. The intervention was, um, in hindsight, hysterical. You know, my mom had packed my bag because that's what you do. You know, if you're doing an intervention for a loved one, you're prepared for them to leave immediately. So she was prepared for me to go. And of course, I ripped everything out of the bag, threw it down the stairs, realized she packed everything that I needed, had to then go down the stairs and pick it all back up and put it back in the bag. But I just, you know, I was I was looking for anything. And, and my final negotiating tactic was a manicure. I told them I would only go to detox if I could get my nails done. And I thought there's no way they're going to say yes. You know, like that's ridiculous. And they did. The interventionist was like, okay, we'll stop on the way. And they stopped on the way. And I got, I think like, you know, long acrylic nails painted black. And I went to detox. Um, I don't remember much else. The first real clear memory I have is an AA meeting in treatment and identifying with feelings. The guy that was speaking at this meeting definitely was not like me at all. You know, he was like a middle-aged white guy. But there was enough in his story that I listened. You know, he, he talked about acting. He talked about New York. He talked about blacking out. And then once he had my attention, I could hear his feelings. Um, and that was like mind blowing, you know? So I identified with the feelings that this guy had and realized that 
realized that I was onto something. And so then, of course, I did what any good alcoholic will do and very alcoholically uh, went through treatment, um, you know, making amends within like the first week. You know what I mean? Like, I just was like, ah, this is it. Um, and that didn't work. You know, I, I, uh, I failed to do some key things. So, so when I left treatment, I left with an epiphany for sure. The seed had been planted without a doubt. Um, but I also left with like a boyfriend, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, this a ticket to South Florida. And, um, so things got muddied. I got to Florida and I very quickly did nothing. You know, I went to the beach, I got a job, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do the things that they told me to do. And, uh, I relapsed and my relapse in Florida was the first, uh, relapse I had that resulted in an arrest. I also, uh, overdosed and died on a bathroom floor at a gas station. One of those outside bathrooms that locks if you close the door, but thank God the girl who left me there yelled when she left. So I was, I was found and, and resuscitated and left the hospital AMA and was arrested a couple days later and just sort of like, you know, all of these consequences happened. And, and the, the most important part of that is that none of those consequences mattered. I, I always wish that that was my last, you know, drink or drug, but it wasn't because it's not about the consequences. It's never been about the consequences. My last drink or drug was a couple of days later at a cheesecake factory drinking mojitos by myself. And it was my last one because of the feelings. I had no consequences on that last drink. I don't even think I got drunk, but I know that I, I realized that I couldn't feel the way I felt any longer and, and that I, I was done. I was so, so, so done. And, and so, um, I, at that point threw everything I had into 12 step programs. Um, I took every suggestion that my sponsor gave me. I surrounded myself by other women who, um, had more time than me. And, um, you know, my life started to open up. I just celebrated eight years last month. So in my eight years of sobriety, I have had the, the, opportunity to, I actually talked about this in a meeting yesterday morning. Um, I was at a, I was in Las Vegas for work and I oftentimes, I'd never been to Las Vegas when I was drinking, thank God. Um, but I oftentimes when I'm traveling am reminded of, um, a quote from some of the literature from 12 step programs that says that you'll be free, you know, that you can go anywhere that other people can go and that you can do anything that other people can do. And that to me was was a huge part of the reason why I stayed in the program and continued. Because if you told me that I was going to have to fight every single day to not drink, I don't know that I would have been able to do this. But I wasn't told that. I was told if I do the work um, on myself, that I that I won't have to fight, that, I, that it, the obsession will be lifted and I'll be free. And that has been my experience. In, in my eight years of sobriety, I've traveled the world. I spent seven weeks in Europe with my two best friends. Uh, we were offered probably more free drinks during that time than I was ever offered when I was drinking, but it was never it even crossed our minds to accept them, you know? So I got to see the world. Um, I've gotten to be a daughter to my parents um, in a way that they so desperately needed me to be after what I had put them through. Um, I, I've been able to be a sister to my two incredible sisters and now an aunt to my brand new beautiful niece. You know, my little sister didn't speak to me for a long time. And two years ago, she moved down to Florida to be close to me, you know, because she values our relationship that much because of my sobriety. And then my career, you know, uh, I had a, 
I had no idea what I was going to do when I got sober. You know, I wasn't going to move back to New York City and be an actress. And in, in the beginning, I was like slinging pizzas to make it. And that worked for a while. But, you know, I knew that there was more. And uh, as a direct, direct result of my recovery, I have the most amazing career that I could ask for. Um, I've had the opportunity to spend the last five and a half years helping other people find recovery. Uh, and I get paid to do it. How incredible is that? I've been taught so much about being a professional in this business um, by other beautiful, amazing people who've come before me. That's been just one of the incredible gifts. For those of you in recovery who are struggling, um, there's a a cheesy quote that I'll say, don't leave before the miracle happens because it does happen. Um, and the biggest thing I can say is that you need to find people um, that have what you want and keep them around you. When I had a shitty idea in early sobriety, I had, I had strategically surrounded myself with women um, who were a little further along in their recovery than I was so that, that they weren't as likely to jump on that bandwagon with me. Um, so surrounding yourself with people who want, you know, who have what you want, not, not all people who are, you know, exactly at the same place you are. Um, I think that's really, really important. Um, and yeah, just don't leave before the miracle happens because it absolutely will happen. It, it really will. And then for people who are struggling in, and still in their addiction um, and deciding whether or not they, they want to, you know, make the leap and, and, try and, and get treatment. You know, all I can say is what do you have to lose? And if you look at it, honestly, you probably don't have anything to lose. You probably only have everything to gain. I thought I had lots of things to lose, you know, that day of my intervention, you know, I was very concerned about my job and my, you know, boyfriend that I didn't like, but, but all it was, was I was afraid to lose my addiction because I didn't know what I would be left with after. And, and let me tell you, you're in there and that's what you'll be left with and you're beautiful and amazing and worth it and uh, you should give yourself the opportunity to, to have the life that you deserve.